both Kate and I, we're interested in our different ways of what it is to be a good ancestor. What kind of world are we going to leave to the generations to come? You know, and that's one of the things that I think, you know, unites our thinking and discussions and conversations about all of this. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute um, in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, asking them all the same question. In the midst of all that is going wrong and going confusing and going crazy, uh, what do they see emerging that could possibly go right? Today's guest is Roman Krisnarek and Kate Rayworth. Uh, they are a married couple and they're both authors and they both think about long-term thinking, sustainability, economics, empathy, and um, intergenerational justice. And I invited them to come together. They, have, they each have their own platforms, um, their books and their following, but I invited them to come together so that we could have a conversation about what they see emerging. I asked them also to introduce themselves. So we're gonna leave it at that. And there will be links in the, um, the show notes. Uh, the conversation did go on quite a while. And uh, so it's a little longer than you're used to, but every little minute is, was a pure joy for me. So here they are. Okay, hi, Roman Krisnarek. I got it right this time and Kate Rayworth. Welcome to What Could Possibly Go Right. And what a lucky stumble upon that I approached you, Roman, and then discovered you are married to Kate, who I met many, many years ago and admired for her model of donut economics. So lucky me, you agreed to do this together, and it's my first time having tried to do a duo. And unlike most webinars where individuals speak uh, and, and often do their mismatched five-minute pitches, I want you to speak from that deeper agreement that you surely have um, about how to think about the future. So we can have one. <laughs> and Roman, you speak about long-term thinking, about being good ancestors and about empathy as a foundation for healing what divides us. And Kate, you talk about the social and emotional conditions for sustainability, not just the environmental limits. Um, and both of you stand for the sort of Cinderella of sustainability the beautiful aspect of humans and societies that are currently swamped by the wicked step sisters of meanness and me firstism and competition. Um, so I'm sure you've talked and talked and talked about this at the dinner table, and I'm sure there's a shared heart of the matter for you. And I want you to speak from that. So I first invite you to each briefly introduce your work in your own words, uh, because um, there's two of you here, and I just want you to say it in your own words, and then to consider however you want to, and hopefully as a duet, not as solo arias, our key question, which is in this moment when so much seems to be going wrong, what do you see emerging that could possibly go right? Kate, I think you better start. <laughs> okay. I studied economics at university because I thought it would give me the tools I needed to help make changes in the world. And I was so disappointed by what I was taught. I walked away from it and decades later realized in the wake of the financial crisis, when the economists started saying, oh, we need to rewrite economics to, to make it reflect financial realities. I thought I'll be damned if we're only going to make it reflect financial realities. We need to make it reflect ecological planetary realities and realities of crisis of human suffering and inequalities. So I drew a picture that is like a compass for human prosperity in the 21st century. And strange though it sounds, it came out looking like a donut. You can see one on the wall behind me, but I've even got one right here. I'm just going to put it right in the room because this is so at the core of the work I do. So the goal here is to leave nobody in the hole in the middle of the donut. That's where people are falling short on the essentials of life. It's where people don't have the resources they need to have food and housing and healthcare and education, transport, income, political voice, and equality. Leave no one in the hole. Get everybody over that social foundation. But as we collectively use Earth's resources, 
we must not overshoot that ecological ceiling because that's where we put so much pressure on this delicately balanced, unique living planet that we begin to kick it out of balance. And we cause climate breakdown and we acidify the oceans and break down the web of life. So in the simplest of terms, the goal of this picture is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the living planet. Now, I, I sketched that on a piece of paper back in 2012, and I was working at Oxfam at the time, and we published it as a discussion paper, just as an idea. And I was absolutely amazed by the traction it had that people who've been talking about these issues for decades found this picture incredibly empowering to their argument. And I learned through that the power of pictures, the power of our visual intelligence and the need to recognize the pictures we draw profoundly shape what we do and don't see, what we put at the center of our vision and what we leave peripherally. So I wrote this book, Donut Economics, really as an aim to rewrite the core ideas of economics so that they're fit for the 21st century. And I did it through drawing the, redrawing the pictures. The old ones are like intellectual graffiti in our minds. And it's really hard to scrub out graffiti. So it's much easier to paint over it with a beautiful mural. So I tried to draw new pictures. But when we start economics with this, not with welcome and here's the market, but with this, this is our goal. This is what we're actually trying to achieve. Now, once we've got a goal, what kind of structures of government regulation, services, uh, provision, markets, prices, incentives, mechanisms, designs, what kind of economic structures will give us even half a chance of getting here. And when you start like that, it changes everything that follows. Over to you, Roman. Wow, over to you, Roman. Well, Kate walked away from economics. Um, I walked away from political science. I did a PhD in politics, and I used to think that the way you change the world was by changing laws and public policies and um, political institutions and elections and things like that. But I started to realize, I guess in the late 1990s, that one of the ways that the world changes is through empathy or what psychologists call cognitive empathy or perspective taking empathy, the capacity to step into the shoes of another person and look at the world through their eyes. And that struck me as something fundamental for how we overcome social divides between people of different age groups or ethnic backgrounds or cultural differences. And, you know, I'd grown up in Australia where I hadn't really encountered the indigenous perspective of the country's history. You know, I was taught that Britain had benignly colonized Australia and it had never really occurred to me until I was probably in my twenties that from the indigenous perspective, Australia was invaded. You know, there was a war in the 18th century when the British arrived. And that's all about empathy, as I you know, understand it. And the psychology books tell us it. So I started studying empathy. I left academia, walked away from that political science stuff. I wrote a book about empathy. Um, but I also founded a museum called the Empathy Museum, which travels around the world and tries to give people the experience of what's it like really to be another person from a different background, a different perspective. And one of the exhibits we've got, and this has really sort of led me to where I am today. One of the exhibits is called A Mile in My Shoes. And it's a gigantic shoe box that you can actually walk inside. It's the world's first empathy shoe shop. And you walk in and someone will fit you with a pair of shoes belonging to a stranger. It could be a Syrian refugee um, or a kid living in the slums of Brazil or an investment banker from the city of London. And you can literally walk a mile in their actual shoes while listening to a audio narrative of them talking about their own life in their own words. And it's very intimate. Um, it's sort of when you've got the their sound of their voices through your ears and their shoes on your feet, you kind of feel you're enveloped in their body. It's amazing. Um, it was designed by a great um, artist called Claire Patey who runs the museum. I'm just the chair of the board. Um, but one of the interesting things about the Empathy Museum is it's about trying to step into the shoes of people in today's world. And that started me thinking, well, how do you actually step into the shoes of people in tomorrow's world, the citizens of the future? Because you can't easily step into their shoes or have a conversation with people who are born in the year 2100. How do we make a kind of empathic leap through time, not just across space? And it was a subject I'd raised a little bit in this book, Empathy, 
but I'd never really tackled it properly. It was almost too difficult. And that's what my book, The Good Ancestors, all about. And it's in a way led by a question that was asked by the great immunologist Jonas Salk, who developed the first polio vaccine in the 50s. But in later life, he said, the great question facing civilization is this, are we being good ancestors? In other words, how are we going to be remembered by the generations to come for what we did or didn't do when we had the chance? Because our actions today have probably more impact, more detrimental impact potentially on future generations than at any moment since history. I mean, obviously that all began probably on 16th of July, 1945, when the first nuclear test happened, the Trinity test. But since then we've added to our ways of sort of dumping on the future, ecological risks like, you know, the climate crisis, technological risks like AI and bioweapons. So I think, you know, both Kate and I, we're interested in our different ways of what it is to be a good ancestor. What kind of world are we going to leave to the generations to come? You know, and that's one of the things that I think, you know, unites our thinking and discussions and conversations about all of this. Wow. You know, just listening to both of you, you know, harmonizing both of you in my own mind. Um, I remember, I remember way back when, <laughs> I'm feeling like an old lady because it's my 76th birthday. Happy um, birthday, Vicky. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> um, but I remember being so excited in 1989 when I went to the first U.S. conference on the Brooklyn Commission report on our common future. And I, I was so inspired that I got together with a group of friends and we started Sustainable Seattle, which did the first indicator projects project for sustainability for the city of Seattle. I remember sitting in this tower in one of the organization's buildings, you know, sort of like an upper room dreaming that sustainability would be on the minds of every policymaker. You know, we said in the city of Seattle, that was our, our goal. Um, and the, the construction is, basically living today in such a way that um, unfolding our, our it was, what was it, unfolding our well-being in such a way today that future generations will have the resources they need to unfold their beautiful future. Yeah, that's right. That idea of yeah, meeting the needs of today's generations without compromising the possibility of future generations to meet their needs. Yeah, Exactly. So there it was baked in the beginning. And so quickly, the corporate interests took over and made it sustainable growth. I mean, I remember when that happened in the President's Council on Sustainable Development under Bill Clinton and watching them do that, watching them do the trick. And then I'm also thinking about, you know, that we used to talk about the three-legged stool, um, you know, environment, economy, oh, <laughs> and, and, you know, social justice. or And that, I remember, like, watching that third leg wither, you know. And so, in a way, you, you are bringing forward in language for this time the sort of weak sisters, if you will, the sort of Cinderella... Um, is sort of relegated to the, you know, to, to the basement um, aspect of this dream that the world itself generated. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, there's like immense disappointment that we didn't realize that in the subsequent years, 35, <laughs> but so- here we are again. And so, I would like to just, if you have a comment, Kate, you know, go ahead. Yeah, but I, I have really a question too. It's powerful hearing you saying that, Vicky, because I think we are we are doing the same work. This is the same piece of work and it goes on. And I think it's really important. And it's very sobering to hear you say that because it's almost no different from that excitement of the possibility today. And yet this was 30 years ago. And of course, it happened before that in the 70s as well. Right. Right. So it's really important to connect. And, and I've had the privilege and honor of, of being in conversation with Herman Daly, who was one of the founding fathers of ecological economics, or Hazel Henderson, who also since the 70s and 80s has been doing this work. Sometimes people 
say to me when I show the donut and talk about these ideas, well, you know, this is, these ideas have been around for a long time. Like what's new? What are you, what are you saying that's new? And I love this quote from Andre Gide. He said, everything that needs to be said has already been said, but since nobody was listening, it has to be said again. And I feel that we're doing this same work and there is no guarantee that the people who need to be listening are listening now. So we, in each generation, we can believe that there's a momentum, it's happening, it's changing. I'm sure you felt it at the time. And things are so at risk of being captured, greenwashed, um, that we never know. And we never know until it's done and we can look back and say that really was a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really critical to the work that we do. People, you know, I don't know whether this is a tipping point. I, I certainly have reasons to believe and I really love the spirit of this podcast, what could possibly go right. And, and what if we believe that those things that could possibly could go right will go right if we give them that possibility? And that's the spirit in which I certainly work. But it's just really important to recognize that this is the same work that has been done for generations. And I'm really aware that the work that I do that I called in a kind of crazy way, Donut Economics, it absolutely builds upon the work of thinkers and activists who for decades have brought these ideas, indeed centuries, have brought these ideas, and I'm just representing them this time with donuts. Um, and let's yeah. see if this has traction. Yeah, it's sort of like we're building on our good ancestors. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was doing this simplicity work back back in the day with Your Money, Your Life, there's a book by David Shai, you know, called The, called the Simple Life. And he traced simplicity through the American story from the very beginning You know, it's like, oh, okay, well, so we're just doing this generation's um, work. And, you know, like Roman, when we, when we have this longer perspective, there is, a, there is a, a humility that comes. Um, and so both of you sort of set up this, you know, your response to this question of like, what do you see emerging right now? Because this pod podcast came out of the pandemic, like, oh, every breakdown is a breakthrough. So says Pollyanna, <laughs> you know, rising again. You know, what do you see emerging now? Is, is we sort of like haltingly emerge from the pandemic, you know, the, the you know, the, in the United States, the racial justice movement. I mean, we sort of had the punctuation, you know, of the trial of Derek Chauvin, you know, we're, we're sort of like inching our way forward. But it's a very um, murky emergence. So where do you see evidence of things going right that we can cooperate exactly with, like exactly what you said? You know, we have to like not only put forward our ideas, but, but cooperate with them, you know, build on them. So what do you, what do you see? I guess for me, I mean, you mentioned earlier the phrase language for our time. And I think a lot of this is about finding the right words and narratives to describe the things that are going on around us and that have been going on. But something I have really noticed um, in the last few years is the emergence of a kind of secret movement emerging around the world who I think of as time rebels. That's the kind of language that I use. These are people, organizations, movements who are dedicated to taking the long view and intergenerational justice. And a lot of them are building on older ideas of ecological stewardship found in indigenous cultures, idea of seventh generation decision-making, of course, in Native American culture and First Nations people, or in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, there is a, a concept, a Maori concept called whakapapa, which is their word for lineage or genealogy, the idea that you're in a long chain of life going far into the past and long into the future. It so happens the light shining here and now. The question is, how do we shine it more broadly? But the time rebels in the realm of politics, economics, culture are taking action. So for example, politically in the US, there's this great public interest law firm called Our Children's Trust, uh, working out mm -hmm. of Eugene, Oregon, yeah. who are, you know, uh, who filed a landmark case against the federal government, as well as state governments on behalf of 21 young people campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. They're really trying to put those Brundtland Commission ideas into practice and doing something that hasn't been done since the French Revolution, which is trying to secure constitutional rights for people who may not be born for decades. And they've inspired movements around the world. Or in the arts, there are fantastic examples like 
there's a Scottish artist called Katie Patterson, um, who's got a project called Future Library, which is a 100 year art project where every year for the next century, a famous writer is donating a book which will remain completely secret and unread in the future library until the year 2114, when the 100 books will be printed on paper made from a thousand trees which have been planted in a forest outside Oslo. And the first person to donate a book was Margaret Atwood, um, Elif Shafak and other writers donated since. And just think then, you know, Margaret Atwood is never going to see that book published in her lifetime. It is a legacy gift and it asks us, you know, what gifts we are going to leave. And of course, from politics to culture, there's a whole realm of economics where, you know, Kate's, you know, working, where there are people working there is circular economy, many other areas which are about ultimately taking care of the place that will take care of our offspring, to use the language of the great biomimicry thinker Janine Benyas, who Kate introduced me to, of course, you know, how do we think long term, ultimately, but by living in with the boundaries of the ecosystem in which we're embedded, it's, it's about place as much as time. So put all of these together, actually, to me, they look like an emergent movement, a movement of time rebels for intergenerational justice in the 21st century. I find it really um, exciting and unexpected. You could probably add, add Greta Thunberg um, to that. Oh, she's, a, she's a classic time rebel. You know, she says, look, when I'm 75, you know, what will my children think of me? You know, she talks about cathedral thinking being needed to take, tackle the climate crisis, looking and planning decades ahead. And we, but the, the, the paradox is we need to do it with an absolute urgency. We need to do it kind of right here, right now to take that long view. Do you see any, any I mean, I'm, I'm sort of like poking in about this, but do you see any, any other evidence from the last year, not just sort of, you know, because we know that the Children's Trust lawsuit did not succeed yet, <laughs> you know? So, so there's like these incursions, it's sort of like those little tongues and the tide is coming in and there's one little tongue that goes up on the beach. What other tongues are you seeing in this past year well, or two? Well, just in that realm of, of, of legal um, cases, in Germany just a few weeks ago, the constitutional court ruled against the government because they said the government was effectively um, violating the rights of future generations through its limited carbon emission targets. And then just a couple of weeks before that, there was another case in the Netherlands where the oil company Shell got lost a big case. And before that, there was another case in the Netherlands where uh, called the Urgenda case, which again is all about rights for future generations, forcing the Dutch government to take more action. So actually, I think you're right. You know, our children's trust is a kind of David versus Goliath struggle. And, you know, they're working on their next cases. These cases will go on for years and often legal cases do go on for decades, as we know from the women's movement and the civil rights movement. But what's happening with this future generation stuff, it's happening much faster than I'd ever expected. And also in countries like Pakistan in the global south too, where there's recent Supreme Court rulings using the language of intergenerational justice. So this is really, you know, I don't want to be overly hopeful about things. I, I'm as surprised as maybe you might be about the how sexy law has become, I think, at least in my eyes. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, over to you, Kate, you know, like do some finger painting on this paper that we're developing. Okay, so when you say, you know, what could possibly go right? And I think, well, what do I see that could possibly go right? So here are the, to layer onto that, this, this emergence of time rebels, which is a concept I love. I'm gonna say one thing, I love it because it gives people a name and people say, oh, now I have a name for that thing that I am. And it's so, as Roma said, the power of language, it's so important to be able to name and, and, and create words that actually give name to the possibilities we want to become. And I've, I've heard him give talks and people say, I'm a time rebel. I'm going to be a time rebel. I already am a time rebel. And it's so empowering to be able to name this thing. So I wanted to bring two others. I wrote Donut Economics um, as an act of advocacy. And when it came out in 2017, I gave lots of talks. And I was so struck by people who would come up to me after this talk and you know, I was saying, what if this and what if that and imagine if and, and people come up to me and say, you know, no, I, I'm doing it. I, I'm a teacher and I'm teaching these ideas and I'm teaching this donut in my classroom, not because it's on the curriculum, because it's not on the curriculum, but it's because I know this is what my students need and deserve to learn. Or I'm a town councillor and I'm going to take this into our next town council meeting. I'm a, I'm a community activist or I'm part of transition network and I'm taking this in. 
I'm a CEO or I'm the newest graduate employee of a company. I'm going to take this into my company. So there were these people everywhere. I'm an MP. I'm a civil servant. I, so I've won, I have learned that there are change makers everywhere. And don't judge somebody by the organization they're in, the role they seem to play. Because some change makers, yes, they block bridges and lock onto oil rigs and we need them. And I've sat with them and blocked bridges with them. But other change makers quietly work inside the tax office and take decade to change the tax code towards social justice. And they do quiet, long work. And other change makers are in a classroom teaching 30 kids at a time, year after year after year, but knowing that they are changing the, the ideas that those kids encounter. So there are change makers everywhere. And when ideas come along that work for them, to help them bring about the change they already wanted to bring about, they grab it and they run with it. And that's why we've turned the book of Donut Economics into Donut Economics Action Lab, very intentional name. It's all about action and it's a lab because we're experimenting and we're learning how to bring about change with change makers everywhere. So I'm just blown away every day by these change makers I meet. And that I know that's what keeps me going. That's what gives me energy. And then the second thing I want to say is the power of peer-to-peer -peer inspiration. So I can stand on a stage or come on a podcast or go on the radio or write a blog about what if a city adopted these ideas and put them in practice or what if a, an enterprise did or whatever teachers started teaching this. That's fine. But it's a completely different game when a mayor says we are going to put the concept of donor economics at the heart of our plan for our city as we emerge from coronavirus, as the deputy mayor of Amsterdam did. Because that is a signal to mayors everywhere who suddenly look, wow, that's somebody who's like me doing that thing that I would have said was impossible or a little bit crazy, but they're already doing it. And that just opens up a door of possibility. And Amsterdam decided to adopt the donor as a concept for becoming a circular economy in their city. Well, along comes COVID and knocks everything sideways. But Amsterdam said, no, we're going to launch this. We're going to launch our circular strategy in April 2020 at the height of their COVID crisis. Why? The deputy mayor said, because we need to keep doing the business of government. We can't just stop everything. And as we emerge from this emergency, whenever that happens, we need to know who we want to become and where we want to go. As you said, right, a crisis can be a breakthrough. So we need to use this to pivot in the direction we already knew we needed to move in. That was written up in the Guardian newspaper on page, you know, seven or eight, and it just went viral internationally. It, it fed a hunger and a possibility that people were listening to. And we were suddenly contacted by city officials, councillors, deputy mayors, mayors from places all around the world and towns and nations saying, that thing Amsterdam's doing, we want to do it. How can we do it next? So I'm absolutely convinced by the power of peer-to-peer -peer inspiration. And that means if we're, any of us are in the business of promoting and bringing about change, raise up those pioneers, hold them up, make them visible, celebrate them, support them, because they are phenomenal at inspiring and giving permission to so many more like themselves. Can I just add a little something to this? Yeah. Um, you know, I remember reading a few years ago, um, one line in a slightly obscure book on economic history called Energy in the English Industrial Revolution by Tony Wrigley. And what this book said was that in the 18th century, the great political economist Adam Smith didn't even know there was an industrial revolution going on when he was inside it or at the early stages of it. He couldn't see it. And I think, you know, when one's thinking about what could possibly go right, it's really important to remember that it's quite difficult to see all the things that might be going right right now. And I think Kate's experience of seeing the peer-to-peer -peer inspiration that's happened with the donor and the way it's spread is one of those things that when you start seeing the connections, connecting those lines, that filigree of um, interdependence, it feels like movement. It feels like movement in its most profound sense of social change, the kind of thing that's there, but you really have to look a little bit harder you know, which is partly what this conversation is about, to enable people to see what's actually there and build something out of that hope and that connection. Wow. I mean, this does remind me actually of um, when I, when I, we first published Your Money, Your Life, and I was campaigning to end overconsumption in North America. Um, 
And everywhere I went, every talk I gave, people would come up to me and they would say, like, sort of like Soto Voce, you know, I actually do exactly what you're talking about. You know, so you say, I'm making the world safe for frugality. You know, they're all coming out of the woodwork. And I made it a goal of every interview I did until the host, him or herself, said, you know, I actually do this, you know, until I, I had somehow evoked that it's the most fun game in town. And then people wanted to, affirm that it's their game too. And so I just like, um, I think you, you're, you're referring to, we have narrative rebels and there's, there's, you know, in this era of polarization, what I see is that people are trying to capture the narrative, but they're trying to capture it in opposition to the people who are trying to capture it. You know, and we have like at least two narratives, if not a hundred. And then using social media, using every tool in the book to, you know, sort of have competition and escalation on narrative, you know, like, what is this time about, you know, and I'm doing it too. Oh, no, the pandemic is an opportunity. <laughs> so, but there is something else you're talking about, which is a noticing emergent, um, emergent phenomena, emergent people, emergent streams, and naming that, you know, and so finding language for that. And I think that's probably what the both of you are in the business of. And it's not just language, because what I see you doing is creating these visuals, you know, and the visual just goes ping right in. Um, and so I mean, just reflect on this sort of I would be interested in your thoughts about narrative language as a sort of higher order intervention, you know, rather than being an intervention of resistance. Thoughts? I'm going to jump in. Um, I definitely think narrative language is a higher order intervention, as in, I mean, what language is doing, as images are doing too, is reframing the paradigm whether it's through words or pictures. And anyone who's familiar with the work of Donella Meadows, another of these people who's been in this teamwork for decades, she wrote this phenomenal book that's profoundly influenced me called Thinking in Systems. And she talks about the different leverage points for intervening in the system. And right down the bottom is, you know, you could tweak the tax rate. Uh, you could um, make information move more, more uh, openly, which is really powerful when companies are required to publish the information about their carbon emissions per gallon. That's really, really powerful, for example. But going higher and higher up the leverage at the top is changing the paradigm. And how do we do that is through bringing new words that describe what we're aspiring to or bringing new pictures. And as Meadows says, you know, it might, might sound like changing the paradigm is slow work that takes decades, but in an individual, it can happen in an instant. The scales can fall from the eyes. And I've certainly experienced that showing people the donut. And when they go, oh, you mean it doesn't have to be an economy that's about growth. It can be about this. It can be about finding dynamic balance. And the most important thing is that if we're only against something, there's nothing to be for. You've got to have that thing that you're for. So I think you know one of the most powerful forms of protest is to propose something new if we want our politicians to go beyond gdp we have to create something completely different that doesn't refer to gdp so that they can talk about thriving instead of endlessly growing so this is key and when i first drew the donut like i said people had this response to it i was amazed by and i started looking into the power of imagery and i learned that over half of the nerve fibers in our brain are linked to our eyesight so our eyes are pattern spotters we're just continually trying to make pattern which is why we see poodles in the clouds and, and ghosts in the shadows and so when we see an image it goes in through our eyes it passes by our very analytical rational mind that has been trained through especially through western education to analyze argument and words and language it goes straight past that it goes into the visual cortex which is literally at the back of your head so if you say oh it's in the back of my mind it really is sitting there in the back of your mind like an image you may have seen decades ago, but it's still shaping what we do and don't see. So for me, that was key to redraw the pictures and to realize how empowering they are and how powerful they can be 
to dislodge the old narrative, not just arguing against the old, but actually standing for the new and doing it playfully. Doing it playfully. I want to add one thing, Dickie, because you just mentioned about making fr frugality a great game and making it playful. I think of you now every time I drive a car, and here's why. I remember when we visited, I visited you in your home in 2001. That's when we first met. And you had this car and you had fitted into it. I'd never seen it and I never saw one since you had it fitted into this thing. It was like a efficiency monitor. And I remember you saying it's really fun. And I drive my car and I try to drive as fuel efficient as I possibly can. And it's this great game. I thought that's, an, that's, that's amazing. And I never saw one since now in December last year, Roman and I looked at each other and thought, we know way more than enough about climate change and the causes of climate change. And we just can no longer justify owning a car. We had a car, it sat outside our house. It was really convenient. We have 12 year old twins who want to play football and hockey and drama and this and that at the weekend. And it's really handy to let's jump in the car and we'll take you where you want to go. But we just thought we, we just can't justify it on those grounds. And we also happen to live in a city, in a neighborhood of a city that has a car club, cars dotted around that we can go online and we can book those cars and use those cars. And they're not always available and you have to be organized. So there is a loss of that easy convenience, but come on, are we going to do this or not? So we gave away our car and it was taken away. And actually it was painful. The days between when we called the company said, could you please come and take this car away? And it was about five days before they came. And I really felt it viscerally. And this is, for me, psychologically important, that feeling of letting things go, the privilege of letting go and how you, your brain goes, should I really do this? Actually, this car works and it's full of memories. And I, 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 is this a mistake? And it was only when the car had literally been towed off around the corner and disappeared that I felt this lift, just this lightness. And there was an empty parking space in front of our house. And I I know, I know I can't legally stop anyone parking there, but socially I'm going to encourage people to leave that space empty. And we've chalked it and built a snowman in it and playfully used it. But to the point of my story, now when we use a car from the car club, they're electric cars or hybrid cars. And inside built in is this little thing that tells you you're driving 85 or 89 or 91% eco-efficiency and I think Vicky Robin all the way so I think of you every time I drive a car <laughs> I, I had a, I had one of the first hybrids and I used to drive people crazy because I was always watching the meter and they would be behind me like racing for the ferry <laughs> and I like little uphill <laughs> no we're gonna cruise it you know like oh god yeah but that I'm thing sorry. you said about making it the best game in town I mean again the donut is playful and I know that, you know, a lot of people are scared of economics. I do, I'm not good at maths. I don't understand these things. That's too technical. But when you say donut economics, everyone's like, wait a minute. That's already silly. That's permission to come and play. And it makes people playful. And you just talked about making it the best game. Frugality is a great game, right? And it has to be playful. And it was when I was in this car with this, I was like, this is really fun. I feel great. I'm driving eco-efficient. If only we could find more and more ways to build that in. Mm that it, it just feels great and, and smart and clever to, mm -hmm. to live and work this way. And your well, museum, Roman, is, is that as well? I mean, yes. you... Yeah. yeah, I mean, the Empathy Museum's playful um, as an experience, but I think one can also be playful with these narratives that you're talking about as, as higher forms of uh, intervention, which I think is a great phrase. I mean, just, I happen to have you know, in my hands now, a couple of narrative devices, a marshmallow and an acorn. And these say something about who we are. I mean, in Kate's book, there's a great chapter about rational economic man, you know, challenging the idea that we're just me, me, me and saying, no, we're also wired to be we, we, we. In fact, you might be able to turn it upside down and you go from me to we. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's another part of human nature you know, that we don't think about as much, which is we're not, it's not just that we're both me and we, but we're also long-term and short-term thinkers. We're acorn thinkers as well as marshmallow thinkers as I think about it. So, you know, do I party today or save for my pension for tomorrow? Do I upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? And of course the, the marshmallow brain is, uh, you know, a part of our neuroanatomy, which focuses on immediate rewards and instant gratification, the kind of stuff you've been working with and challenging in all your work on around consumption. And it's named after the famous marshmallow test, you know, in the sixties where kids had a marshmallow put in front of them and they could resist eating it for 
15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow and the majority of kids couldn't resist and snatch the snack. But what was missing from that story, really, and that narrative, which we then inherited, that idea that we are short term, you know, grabbers of marshmallows, but we also have this acorn brain uh, that lives uh, in the front of our head and in the frontal lobe, particularly a bit called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, in case you wanted to know. But that's the part which focuses on long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. And it's new. It's only about 2 million years old. The marshmallow brain's about 80 million years old. And when you think about other creatures, other creatures do plan ahead a bit, right? So a chimpanzee will get a stick and strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke in a termite hole. But they'll never make a dozen of those tools and set them aside for next week. But that's what humans do with our acorn brains. And that's how we, you know, save for our pensions or write song lists for our own funerals or that's how we built the Great Wall of China or voyaged into space. But it's also about why the car club works. Because when we gave up our car, right, we joined this car club. And every time we use it and just have a, an hour in an electric car, we are making that car club function and be more successful and then encouraging the car club to put another car in our area so more people can use them. So it is like planting a seed. You know, in the same way that, you know, putting solar panels on your roof can start driving down the price and it might be a bit more expensive for you, you know, as the acorn planter. But the, the shade um, is enjoyed by others as the price of the solar panels go down. So there's all these different ways we can, I guess, work in our communities and our economies to change the narrative about who we are. But that also changes the world that we're living in. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like. I, I, you know, when I first started publishing your publish, publicizing your money, your life, I took a little course on marketing, which really bothered me because I wanted everybody to think, you know, in the highest minded ways. And she said, you know, things sell because, you know, people want to be smarter than other people. And so I, I pitched your money, your life is being smarter than other people, right. you know, be the first on your block, you know, yeah. well, this is actually. This is something yeah. that Kate says about the Brit like economies and governments. I mean, what's that line that you say, Kate, you know, about, you know, the, the, the British government um, should be the, the first country into the Industrial Revolution. And well, well, I can't remember the exact wording. Well, two things. One, the UK was the first nation into the Industrial Revolution. So we should darn well be the first one out. I mean, that's an onus of historical responsibility on the UK to move first and fastest than anybody else. But in terms of that smart point, so the city of Amsterdam has said, we're going to be hundred percent circular economy by 2050. We're going to be 50% circular by 2030. So in less than a decade, half of the materials that are being brought in and used in the city must be reused, recycled, repaired, refurbished, remanufactured. And next year in 2022, 10% of city procurement contracts will be circular. Now this has brought in regulations, especially in the construction industry of the way that they must now build and design. And I know from working with people in the city that at first the designers and the planners is like, oh God, all these new regulations we have to learn. And then once they learn them about how to design and build in a circular way, they suddenly find, oh, we're at the forefront of the circular revolution. Mm -hmm. We suddenly have these skills and design and opportunity and context to innovate that all these cities and nations around us and the world are going to need. So suddenly it's really smart to give yourself those constraints. And I always say boundaries. So sometimes people, and especially American friends of mine, I really noticed, not you, Vicky. And but, but <laughs> it's okay, when it's I okay. first drew this, some of my American colleagues said, oh, Americans, we don't like boundaries. Americans, we think gonna shoot right through that boundary. And I would say, really? So if I gave you a tiny baby in your arms and this child's temperature is rising to like over 40 degrees, are you gonna say, go girl, you shoot right through that boundary? No you're gonna do everything you can to bring that child's temperature back down. So boundaries actually are health and that we know the boundaries of our body and bodily health, but also boundaries unleash our creativity. And a designer, an architect, anybody who say, please don't give me a blank piece of paper. For heaven's sake, give me some parameters. Make me design in some space. So boundaries unleash creativity. We should not be afraid of them and say they are, they get in our way, they're blocking us. They are what makes us figure out, okay, we've got to do this a different way. And we, we go lateral, we go up, we create something we'd never thought of otherwise if those boundaries hadn't been put in place. And so 
you can create those boundaries for yourself in life and say, I'm going to drive 90%, 95% eco-efficient. <laughs> or you can live somewhere. The government says, you know what, guys, we're just going circular here. Going to make this easy for you. This is just a rule. No fossil fuel vehicles in Amsterdam by 2030. 50% circular material use. I would love to be a graduate student in that city because it means that all the new thinking and the design that I've learned, I actually get to practice rather than leave it behind in my files of dreams from university and join some mainstream company that says, yes, dear, you know, but just get on with real life. So let's put in the place the boundaries that actually unleash the creativity we already know we need. I, I totally love it. And, and I'm sorry, you asked it to be conversational. So here I go. I, I, I wrote a book that I was, you know, I delivered the book and then the publisher canceled the contract. And it was about rethinking limits, rethinking freedom in a world with limits and how to make Americans fall in love with limits the way they've fallen in love with freedom. And I worked years to develop a language for limits that was about design and it was about liberation. You know, and I, 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 I you know, I'm a soundbite queen, you know, and soundbites are narratives. Mm. You know, they're little things that stick in your mind, they're images, you know, and I, one of them that I used to say is, I buy my freedom every day with my frugality. And, and I'm quoted on that now, you know, and people rethink what their, you know, their short term purchases, they go like, oh, well, Vicky says, you know, I buy my freedom every day with my frugality. But hey, what that, happened to this book on limits? Yeah, pull Where out is the it? manuscript, it's <laughs> it off, the time is now. I want to read I, that. Like, okay, well, I, oh, so, it was so tragic. It was like, they canceled the contract, but and, you know, they'd given me an advance, but I'd use the advance to buy my hybrid car and to heal from cancer. <laughs> and I didn't have the money anymore. And I've never had to go have a job like where I went and did somebody else's agenda for money. I didn't even have a concept of that. So I thought, where am I going to get the money? So they said, if I didn't publish a word of this for five years, I could keep the money. So they wanted to put a limit on you. Well, having yeah. cancelled the idea that limits was anything exactly, to do with and so just I intellectual like, property limits. So I put it aside for five years, and by then I'd lost confidence in it. So I keep going back around. I, I will make a special date with you, and I will do my slideshow. I'd love yeah. to see that. We you know, are, it just reminds me. So in for that. Uh, you yeah. know, I wrote I wrote a book which in uh, about two thousand and five, and the publisher turned it down. Uh, even though I had a contract, you know, because it wasn't what they wanted and I refused to change. And it sat in my filing cabinet for 15 years and I've just decided to self-publish it. Actually, it'll be out quite soon. Okay, so, I'm and I'd also, I'd also lost confidence in its ideas. And I thought, no, actually, it still speaks to the world 15 years later. Right. So let's see the slideshow, but let us see the pages okay. as well. Okay, double dare, huh? <laughs> Can we make that like a future episode of this podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So when it was some of my sound bites, I, I was, you know, um, limits are not in the way. They are the way. They're the shaping tools of freedom. If you, you cannot master. That is amazing. <laughs> go on, go on, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> go on, go. I feel like I, I'm just... hearing these, these sort of haikus of post-consumer society coming at me. Yeah. And I talked about, you know, um, cheap thrills and deep thrills, um, you know, and cheap thrills are, you know, basically what you're talking about, short term thinking and, and deep thrills are sort of values based choices that you're going to feel better and better and better and better about yourself over time. And uh, oh, also, I mean, now that you asked, um, I talked about the freedoms that separate and the freedoms that connect and the sort of traditional Isaiah Berlin freedoms are the freedoms that separate freedom from, you know, from constraint, from somebody else telling me what to do. And it's an important freedom because, you know, freedom from poverty, freedom from domination, freedom, you know, these are really viscerally important. And then it's the freedom to, to do what I want, to develop my, my life, my way. Super important, these are liberal freedoms. But I said, there's two hidden freedoms. And there's um, freedom for, like, like, like I say, like, you don't have to get free. You already are free. The problem, problem is that, is that this, this like 
like, you know, like tsunami of freedom is like, you know, coming through you at all times. The problem is how do you shape it? You know, what is freedom for? And that's a very potent question because like most people don't think about, well, it's to be able to have what I want, you know, sort of like, you know, it's like the greater view of freedom is entitlement. And that's sort of like the narrative capture of, of our society, you know, of America. This is the narrative capture that freedom is entitlement. So what is freedom for, you know, so freedom for, um, and then freedom with, the recognition that every other being, the ones you think are alive and the ones you don't think are alive, like rocks, every other being is imbued with the same freedom you are, trying to unfold its destiny. So the challenge of freedom is, is freedom to enact your freedom in the presence of other beings enacting their freedom, not in a zero-sum game. I mean, it's a, it's a total, you know, like, like, uh, what is it? James Carr's, what's that? Um, games, uh, infinite uh, and finite infinite. games. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, exactly. It's that sort of thing. How does freedom become an infinite game? Yes. So yeah, I had all these practices. Okay. I'm re-inspired. <laughs> this one's coming it out also, for sure. But it also just made me think when you're just talking about freedom for, made me think about the donut as a kind of a goal for society and you know where you're going to direct your energies your choices your decisions and that's part of what i think is so compelling to people uh about the donut because it you know it's it's a goal which also speaks to us of, of, of balance rather than continuous growth i mean kate should be saying all of this rather than me but it's partly (laughs) what 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 draws me because i love the idea of a kind of a lodestar to guide our lives i mean i i feel i mean my because i've spent you know a lot of time thinking about agency and mindfulness and things like that i wrote a book called carpe diem regained um about um how to seize the day and the history of that that concept and um one of the things that i really found there was that although i I think there is a huge value in various kinds of mindfulness the buddhist kinds rather than the corporate mcdonaldized packaged kinds what's sort of missing from some of that um is a sense of having goals which give our lives meaning you know and that's the sort of victor frankel story of man's search for meaning having something outside yourself you know that gets you out of bed in the morning and that you care about and that you may not be laughing your head off all day because it's not just about smiling your way through life it's about having purpose and i think the donut sort of plays that role in a really um extraordinary way exactly i i I one time when i i did a book also on local food because i realized that we are completely dependent on long supply chains and you know people think of local food as saturday at the farmer's market and buying a zucchini you know or i think you call it something else um what do you call that courgette courgette right um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and and so just saying you know we, we just need to to build local food systems so i i sponsored um literally sponsored i i paid for because i wanted it to happen um a project in Whidbey island at least an event called food 2020 and the goal was 50 percent of our food within 50 miles by 2020 this was in 20 beginning of 2011 and I did, you know, a, a visioning and backcasting exercise. And, you know, at first, uh, yeah, visioning and backcasting exercise and used, you know, all the sort of social tools that you use. And, and, um, and it was so easy for people to vision, but they couldn't, when we tried to do the backcasting, you know, trying to put on a timeline the things that needed to change by 20, you know, try, you know our imagination wasn't mm. alive enough. We were still constrained by the impossibility of things. Well, wait a second, people own that land. We can't commandeer that land, you know, to grow whatever courgettes. Um, and, um, and I think it has, I mean, I didn't do it. I didn't do any follow-up. I don't like forming organizations, but um, you know, I think it's informed some thinking. And when people think about the future, they think about like one, you know, like, like getting a, 
you know, we're working now on, you know, getting a chicken processing, you know, facility on our island. So, so that's the sort of march from the old system, march through time, but there is a visionary thing. And I think that is, you know, that's positive narrative capture. You put a purpose out there and you, you dress it up in little adorable clothes that everybody can remember, like a donut. And, and then people start to orient around, so it, it does backcasting all by itself. And of course, you know, if you want to buy a pony, you save money when you're nine years old. You know, it's not like a radical notion. It's that if you have goals, it will alter how you spend your time and, and your life is enlivened by having that, oh, right, not buying this candy bar is a pony, you know, or an iPhone or whatever it is. So I think what you're doing is you're sort of, you're sort of lifting up what we already know. That's the funny thing. Yeah. We already know about having goals. We had to be taught short-term thinking. I mean, we had to be taught in this moment in time when we know better to forget that we know better. And I think it's a real disturbance, as you're saying, Kate, I think it's a real disturbance in people because we know better. We're doing things that we know better you should not do. And so you're giving language so that they have a place to step that has some dignity in it to express yes. what they already know, you know? Yes. And one thing I wish I could figure out how to help move faster, like, so London used to be full of people smoking on the tube in every pub, every restaurant, every office, just car, everywhere. And then over decades and in a particular year there was a smoking ban in public places and there was a big kerfuffle of resistance against it and then it happened and actually it's happened across the UK and now we go into pubs or restaurants and and we'll say oh do you remember this would have been just the air thick with smoke and do you remember that feeling when you're in university and your clothes stank of smoke the next day? Wow, we thought that was normal. And as a non-smoker, we thought it was normal to sit in an airplane with people puffing away behind you or in an office. How do we think that was normal? And we get right. so used to the change. And we look back and can't imagine how we tolerated it for so long. And I really, really feel like we're going to have that with fossil fuels. You know, people say, oh, isn't it going to be expensive and difficult to get rid of these cars? And I think we're going to look back within 15 years and say, we used to send our kids walking to school next to what? Next to trucks and buses pumping out this fume that we couldn't smell anymore because we were so used to it. But now we smell it. Oh, do you remember that's the smell of the early 2000s, that petrol? And we thought it was so normal to have it in so many parts of our lives. And we, we didn't want to give it up. What was it we couldn't see? Why did it take us so long? I really think we'll look back. Why did it take us so long to let right. go of owning a car? Why did it take me so long to move to a largely plant-based diet or a fully plant-based diet? Why was I so afraid of giving up milk and cheese? I, I personally went vegan about nine months ago and I, I thought, oh, I'm going to miss cheese. I just really don't miss cheese. I don't miss any of it. And I, I really like it. So why do we get so entrenched in what we think is normal? And then after we've shifted, we look back and think, why could I not see this other side of it? Why could I not see the possibility? So I, I really think there's something important there about learning from changes we have made and are so glad we made and how that can somehow help us hasten through the ones we've yet to realize we want to make. Yeah, it's like delegitimizing something that we consider normal. And, you know, since, you know, Joe Biden, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a good step along the way, but they outfitted a, an F-150 Ford truck as an electric truck, you know, and that's the most popular pickup truck in America. Uh -huh. They outfitted it as an electric and he gets in there with his aviator glasses and, you know, an electric car is like zero to 60 in two seconds. And he takes off and, and pre-orders, people had to smack down $100. Pre-orders went through the roof for that truck. So, yeah, it's a, 
sometimes I feel the urgency of the moment and we don't have time for that slower process, but maybe the, this sort of natural delegitimization, I think Roman, you probably have an idea about that having studied brain science, that there's probably a part of the brain that locks in repetition as a survival strategy, you know? And so it, you're, we're dealing with people's sense of survival. But also we're dealing with something completely wonderful, which is something that the German sociologist Max Weber wrote about over hundred years ago, which is humans are habit forming creatures, you know? Right. And once you're jolted into a new habit, say by a rule that you can't drive a car into London, we just get used to that. And we start, that becomes part of a narrative of who we are and, and how we live. And on the one hand, that's something that's enabled the advertising industry to flourish and sell us stuff that we don't need. We get used to that, but you know, we can also get used to other stuff. You know? And that um, comes back to the better game. Yeah. That's right. And, you know, we need to be, building our habits inside the infinite game you know, totally inside a regenerative economy and ecological civilization not building our habits inside the hedonic treadmill of you know 20th century consumption patterns which we have inherited and must shake off recycling you know that's becoming a norm like oh i don't want to yes. throw it and at first people think, oh, it's such a faff. Which bin is for which? And I, it's, just, I, it's just such a faff to separate my rubbish. And now you think I couldn't possibly put a banana skin in with the plastic. That's disgusting. And what, you know, when you find yourself in a place where they don't separate the rubbish and you think I, I, I can't do this. And, and it's that beautiful realization that my worldview and my behavior and what I consider normal or even acceptable has really changed in my own clear memory. And, and, exactly. and you just said, you know, Vicky, do we have time for these slow processes? And I don't think we have time for them to be slow, but we need to make them fast. Which is narratives, language, metaphors, sound bites, images. Peer to peer inspiration. Know. Yeah, it's like, it's like, yay, there's work for the artists. <laughs> yes. And in a circular economy, where we don't throw materials away, we use them again and again, far more carefully, collectively, and creatively and slowly. There is so much work for the artists. You know, we love going to cafes. You're like, wow, this used to be uh, industrial packing house or, uh, and, and there's old messages of the history of a place are still embodied. And we love the reinvention of space. It's so creative figuring out what could this be next? I mean, you've spent, I know you've spent decades like, what could I do next with this yogurt pot or this, right, this chair? And how do I remake it? And it means we are homo faber. We're continually creating, which is so innate to us. And it's playful and we can laugh and amuse ourselves. Kind of, I can see what that used to be and I can see what you did there and see what you turned that into and what's it going to be next. And it, so it just means that creativity comes right back into the heart of a local economy. That has to be a good thing. Exactly. I, I, I keep looking at this moment. I, I look at the, the clock and I then I look at, you know, God, there's no stopping point here. Everything <laughs> anybody says is something else somebody wants to say. But I think the 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 joy of the the new habits that we're going to form and look back and are forming. I mean, just right now, I know I'm, I'm doing my own thing because I am adding something, but right now you see pictures of people in lines at airports, the dreary old, you know, habit of getting on airplanes and it's all balled up. You know, I mean, one of the best things that for local food is the, you know, breaking of the food supply chains is those pictures of people fighting over toilet paper. These are, you know, these are a moments hopefully of awakening and thinking, you know, maybe there's something else that we could do differently. I also think there's historical perspectives to take here as well, which I think are really interesting. Like, you know, we have this idea that human beings get their status and recognition from material displays and earning stuff and cars and so on. But when you cast your mind back in history, well, in early modern England or Europe or whatever, 500 years ago, 
you know, being wealthy and displaying your wealth wasn't necessarily the best way to get social status and recognition. There are other ways, being a pious priest or a great warrior or all sorts of other things. So we can redefine, we can choose how we want to relate to others and be seen by others. And of course, how we're seen by others really matters, but it doesn't have to be by buying stuff we don't need. You know, there are other ways and other habits we can develop to express who we are. Exactly. I mean, selling water by the river, you know, decades of, of an attempt to, 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 um, to resell, you know, repackage, you know, the sort of thrift store for old ideas that are really very, very fresh and look adorable on you. You know, it's just, uh, I, I just think this is so refreshing. I just, I do think, you know, in just service to the people who are listening, who are probably right now thinking, oh no, don't stop. <laughs> But well, we're not going to stop because we're going to come back for round two, where Vicky pulls out and dusts off her manuscript and tells us about her book that was way before its time, but is right for now, about limits and freedom. Perfect. Okay. That's a stopping point. That's sort of like a, a Mark Twain end of the chapter <laughs> where you cannot not read the next, the next, you cannot not turn the page. So thank you so much. This worked out even better than I could have imagined. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thank so, you, Vicky. It's been great. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.